Morning, Bethel. All right, our scripture reading for this morning is Matthew 5, verses 1 to 16. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 16. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 809. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see you all. So we're in the middle of a series right now. We started last week um, called Love Your Literal Neighbor. Uh, It's easy to talk about loving your neighbor as yourself and think about all these people out there, almost think about it just in a general way. And sometimes we miss the people that God's placed right around us. So we're particularly thinking about the neighborhoods God has planted us in or the apartment complex that, the God has plant, that God has planted you in and intentionally loving those neighbors. And so good timing here as we head into the summer. Oftentimes it's a little bit easier to interact with your neighbors. And so um, we're taking four weeks to consider this theme and uh, ask God for grace to live it out throughout the summer and beyond. So... Um, As we consider this uh, second week here, a couple of passages we're going to look at, I want you to think about the fact that you don't live where you live by accident. Rosaria Butterfield, I'm going to quote from her a few times. She's got this great book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Um, She says, God doesn't get the address wrong. So he placed you in your neighborhood with your neighbors for a reason. Actually, a lot of different reasons. We'll look at a few of them this morning. And he also placed those neighbors in your neighborhood 
for a reason. So, like I said, four-part series on neighbor love and biblical hospitality. It's all about us seeking to be intentional, intentional to pursue God's purposes for us living where we live. So what if, what if all of us, just the folks in this room, what if we all viewed our presence in our neighborhood as Jesus moving into the neighborhood, as Jesus living in the neighborhood? What if we intentionally sought to put the hospital back in hospitality and sought to be a refuge for the needs and the hurts in our neighborhood? Like I said, I, I'm going to quote more than usual in this series because I would really encourage you to read these books. More about that in a minute. But Rosaria Butterfield, at the end of her book, um, kind of ends it with some what-ifs, like inviting you to dream a little bit about what God might do if you adopt this posture in your neighborhood. So here's a few of the things she says there. Imagine a world where every Christian practiced radically ordinary hospitality. Imagine a world where we Christians lived intentionally below our means, having enough to share, and moving into neighborhoods that need us more than we need them. Imagine a world where neighbors said that Christians throw the best parties in town and are the go-to people for big problems and issues. Imagine if the children in the neighborhood knew that the Christians were safe people to ask for help. Imagine a world where every Christian knew his neighbors sufficiently to be of earthly and spiritual good. Imagine a world where you know the names of your neighbors and eat meals together, lending a helping hand before you're asked. Imagine a world where no one languishes in crushing loneliness, where no abused woman or man or child suffers along, where, where people take their real and pressing needs to Christians who have the reputation of being helpers and where victims are not swept away, lost, forgotten. Imagine a world where we fear God more than people and serve God more than comfort. Radically ordinary daily Christianity is not Ph.D. Christianity. The gospel coming with a house key is ABC Christianity. Radically ordinary hospitality is the basic building block for vital Christian living. And then she says, start anywhere, but do start. So that's what this series is all about, to consider these what-ifs and get very intentional and proactive and practical about loving our actual neighbors starting now, starting this summer. So, that might be intimidating <laughs> to some of you. Might be what you're already doing. And if it's natural, supernatural, but natural for you, then great. We need to learn from you. We need to see your example, and you can help us. But if it's not natural, which is probably the majority of us, we need the grace of God for this, which is why we started last week with the hospitality of God. Okay? We were strangers. God welcomed us in. We were enemies, shaking our fist in his face. God loved us, and he invited us to his table. So we can only love our neighbors like this because he first loved us. So it all predicated on, it all starts with the hospitality of God. We can only love because he first loved us. We will only love our neighbors if we are filled up with his love for us. So this week, we're going to consider this question. Why do you live 
where you live. And whenever you ask the question why, sometimes you're looking for a cause, and sometimes you're looking for a purpose, right? So why do you live where you live? Well, ultimately, because God put you there. That's the cause. That's the reason. But why do you live where you live can also be, what's the point? What's the goal? What's the purpose? So we're actually going to answer that purpose question in two ways um, from two different texts here this morning. So think back to the criteria that you applied when you bought the house that you live in or rented the apartment or house that you live in. What were your criteria? Did you have a little list? Well, I like the proximity to work. You know, easy to get, get on 95 or whatever. We liked the neighborhood. It was quiet. It was safe. Well, it was the best option in our price range, in my price range. Maybe you were looking for X number of bedrooms or bathrooms or, you know, this or that amenity. We wanted to be in thus and such school district. You know, we wanted our home to hold its value, likely appreciate, so we bought here. I knew it would be easy to sell. <laughs> or maybe you wanted a fixer-upper and, and, you know, you wanted to build some equity through elbow grease. So ultimately, you live where you live because God placed you there, and God placed you in that neighborhood or apartment complex or retirement community or wherever. And the ultimate reason why you live there is because God placed you there, not because of your criteria. And maybe, maybe God's purposes weren't even on the radar as far as why you bought where you bought or why you rented where you rented. But whether that was on the radar or not, God has purposes for you living where you live. So that's what we're going to focus on. His purposes for you living where you live. What's the point? What's the purpose? So we're going to ask that same question two times and answer it from two different passages. So first off, in Matthew 22, uh, 35 to 40, you can turn there now. Um, if you don't have a Bible or if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that passage on page 828. So why do you live where you live? The first answer is love. One of the primary purposes, reasons why you live where you live is to love your neighbors. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> One of the primary purposes that you live where you live, so think back to your criteria. God's purpose is that you love your actual neighbors. That's why you live where you live. I don't know about you, but I, I, I need to hear that. How often does that factor into the, your kind of daily, weekly priorities and like, this is why I'm going home. This is why I live here, because God wants me to love these actual neighbors. I don't naturally prioritize like that, do you? Jesus wants us to prioritize like that. So let's look at what he says here in Matthew 22. So one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, expert in the law, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You can't tear these apart. Two sides of the same coin. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if you want to summarize the Old Testament, what is the Old Testament all about? It's all about loving God with everything that we are and have and loving our neighbor as ourself. So that's why you live where you live, to love your neighbors. Now this can be very ordinary, okay? So I'm going to give some examples here. Uh, we have this book. You can see a little blurb in the, the bulletin encouraging you to consider getting a copy. There's some out on the welcome desk. Um, so this neighbor love can be really ordinary because sometimes we get intimidated like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Okay, so this book is really practical, really down to earth. So I'll just give you an example here. From this book, The Simplest Way to Change the World, Biblical Hospitality as a Way of Life. So it was just an everyday Thursday. This guy, Brandon, walked out of his house to grab the mail from the mailbox, and he saw a neighbor in his 30s that he hadn't met yet who was walking his dog. He says, I was tempted to do what I and so many others normally do, quickly wave or nod, and somehow acknowledge that I saw him crossing my path, but make it quick enough that we both could go about our business without distraction. I've done that move many times, but on this Thursday, a nudge prompted me to try something different. I changed course and walked directly toward the neighbor. Hey, I said, smiling, I don't think I've met you. What's your name? He told me his name, Stuart, and we struck up a brief conversation. You know, the normal stuff. How long have you lived here? Do you have kids? Is that your dog that's always loose and roaming in the neighborhood? He probably didn't ask that one. Um, so he says, I didn't think much of it other than, he, than that he'd been... A, I didn't think much of it, other than that he'd be a good person to continue building a relationship with and that he was someone my wife and I should have in our home to share a meal. The next time I saw Stuart in our neighborhood, I noticed he had a serious look on his face. I have a question for you, he told me. When you came out of your house that day and beelined toward me, why did you decide to talk to me? No one does that. I was taken aback by his question. We're new to the neighborhood, and I'm just trying to meet our neighbors. And this guy says, oh, okay. It was just weird. I was having a bad day, and I was grumpy, but then you came up, and we had this really good conversation. He went on to tell me about some relationship trouble he was having and how his therapist had recently asked him if he thought getting involved in a faith community might help him with some of his issues. I don't know what I believe about God, and I don't know anything about Mary or Martha or Lucas, yeah, he's not in the Bible, but anyway, um, or any of those characters, but it was just really weird. I thought maybe God sent you to talk to me that day. I smiled. Well, I don't know, Stuart. I, I was just trying to meet you, but I do believe God works that way, so maybe he did. I left that conversation with Stuart that day, encouraged at what depth of relationship God had opened so quickly. That doesn't happen every day, trust me. But I was also disturbed by this thought. How many relationships and opportunities right here at my home have I missed out on? because I just smiled and waved. No matter who we are, walking to our mailbox from our house or apartment feels like the most ordinary, insignificant thing we could possibly do. Nothing that could happen on a trip to the mailbox could be part of what God's doing to change the world, right? So it might be wonderfully ordinary. 
it can also be really difficult, okay, to love our actual neighbors. So this kind of neighbor love certainly applies to our nice neighbors, whatever that means, but it also applies to our not-so-nice neighbors. Any of you have any of those? You don't have to raise your hands. Okay? So we actually read Romans 12 during the singing at one point. Would you turn back to that passage? And as we look at it again, I want you to think of your neighborhood, your neighbors, your actual neighbors, and realize that King Jesus is saying these things to you about your actual neighbors and your actual neighborhood. So don't just think of it in this generic kind of disconnected way. Think about your actual neighbors in your actual neighborhood and that this applies to each of us. So first off, he's talking about the saints there in verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We looked at that briefly last week. Now, bless those who persecute you. You have anybody in mind? Does anybody seem to have it in for you in your neighborhood? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Are there any invisible neighbors in your neighborhood that nobody seems to care about or love? Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Have you ever done one of these tit-for-tat things? You know, the neighbor that tries to push the property line and that... Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you'll heap burning coals on his head, probably a reference to shame. If someone is cruel to you and you respond with love and kindness, it can shame them into softening. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Jesus clearly taught us to love our neighbors, even our neighbors who are, who are our enemies or those who sometimes at least act like enemies. So let's pursue this just a little bit further and turn to Luke 6. Usually we go through the Bible kind of book by book and section by section, but we're kind of bouncing around a little bit here with this series. So Luke 6 27 to 36. And again, as we read down through this passage, think of your literal neighbors. This applies in your neighborhood. Certainly applies to your neighbors at work as well. Maybe people who have been unkind to you. So Jesus says, I say to you, verse 27, Luke 6, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. 
Do you see love your neighbor as yourself as the principle at work here? And it applies even to enemies. And so then Jesus says in verse 32, if you love those who love you, what? Literally, it's in Greek, it's what grace is that to you? In other words, it doesn't take any grace to do that. <laughs> you don't need any supernatural help to love those who love you. Anybody can do that. It takes supernatural grace to love enemies, right? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what grace is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind. Here's the hospitality of God. Here's the neighbor love of God. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, which is all of us until we wake up to our sin and our selfishness and receive his grace to be changed. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So this is sobering, isn't it? If we actually apply this to our actual neighbors, this is hard. In fact, it's impossible. Unless, unless we remember that God loved us while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies. We wanted to be God. We wanted our will to be done on earth as it is in our own mind. We wanted to boot him from the throne and have our kingdom come. So he's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done. He's not asking us to do anything that he's not more than willing to provide the supernatural grace to actually carry it out. So if you've got some not-so-nice neighbors, guess what? You've got this special opportunity <laughs> to display the love, the grace, the kindness, the mercy, the patience of God. It's like a special opportunity to show it, which means it's a special opportunity to seek that miracle grace to love that enemy. So two examples here. One that's kind of, again, sort of mundane, and it's in the form of a video here. And then the second one is kind of this extended story that runs through Rosaria Butterfield's book. So first off, some of you may uh, resonate with this experience. One of our neighbors, uh, actually, not too far, not too long ago, got a dog that was just—it just was a barker. It just became a bigger and bigger issue, and uh, in our house, it would kind of bother us. We weren't really sure what to do about it. It would keep us up, um, and we we kind of wrestled with what to do. We had made the decision not to uh, not to contact the police if there was any way possible. We wanted to have that face to face, so we tried to knock on the door. Etc. I ended up leaving them a note at one point. Of course, that never goes over well at all. That's that's a bad decision in pretty much any conflict. Just leave a note. So anyway, made that mistake. Got on the phone with them finally. Didn't go well. In fact, it went really pretty bad. I had been defensive about my dog by the end of it. She had been defensive about her dog. We had decided, okay, well, we'll look, we'll just try to stay in communication about it. But it was definitely still some. It wasn't quite resolved. At one point. 
Um, it snowed, their car wasn't there, so I decided it'd be a good, good chance to just do something nice for them, just to let them know that, you know, it wasn't just the bad guy who was complaining about their dog. His aunt came out and he was at the hospital being diagnosed or had recently been diagnosed with cancer. There was no way I could really with, <laughs> pursue this conflict about fixing the dog issue with, um, with this going on. I mean, I couldn't, if I put myself in their situation at all, it was just, it was just ridiculous to think I would put any effort into kind of maintaining my dog or containing it or whatever the issue was when, you know, this life altering thing was going on. It just changed the conversation totally, right? The dog still barks. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, uh, I, I don't think it's as often, but it's not as important. The next few months we were able to really just kind of knock on their door and, and make ourselves available. We, we were able to help them with their yard a little bit last year. They're just really warm people that we've gotten to know. It's been, it's been great. We've, we've been able to, uh, um, you know, watch their kids for them. They've watched ours and we've, kind of develop that and even having some spiritual conversations that, that you know there's no way would have happened otherwise if we hadn't if we hadn't stepped out and tried to you know get to know them just be good friends you know that's that's all it was the relationships uh, I, I think are by nature they just have a little bit of messiness to them right and I think if you're in really wanting to love love them the way that, that Christ told us to um, you, you kind of have to be ready for that is this something we just want to do to check off of a list? Or is it something we really want to allow ourselves to be used by God? Yep, so that's pretty practical. Actually, totally applies to our life with the dog thing. Um, and hopefully with the relationship as well. Um, so that story, I actually read about it in the Art of Neighboring book. Remember we gave these magnets out last week? Um, so if you weren't here last week, make sure you get one of these. They're at the welcome desk. Really practical way to take steps to know your neighbors. So your house is right there. Do you know the names even of the eight people, eight families that live right around you? What if you were intentional about moving down the line from stranger to acquaintance to relationship with those eight people this summer? About 100 family units at Bethel, 800 people. Like, what if we actually took this really seriously? So I want to make sure I mention that again. Um, the other story about enemy love comes from Rosario Butterfield's book. And like I said, this is kind of like a long, extended illustration that she comes back to multiple times throughout the book. So I'm going to try to summarize it by quoting a few different sections um, and... Yeah, this is just a beautiful story. So our house and Hank's house share a dead end that stops where two acres of woods open up. When Hank's moving van first backed down his driveway in 2014, he was a self-described recluse. He, <laughs> he played loud music. He occasionally received cell phone calls that got him seething mad and shouting obscenities. He owned a 100-pound pit bull named Tank who ran the streets without collar or tags. He didn't cut his grass for three months. So if that person moves into your neighborhood, what do you do? What's, what's the conversation behind the door? So we trusted that Hank was the neighbor God had planned for us, though not the one they expected or necessarily wanted. She says, good neighboring is at the heart of the gospel we know. 
<laughs> so they made some overtures, some attempts. Instead, in response, he dismantled his front doorbell <laughs> so that they couldn't disturb him. They prayed for him for a year, making attempts, but he was kind of reclusive. Then one day, Tank ran away, and they helped him find the dog. They obviously expressed concern, and they put up notes and you know, online boards and whatever. When Tank was finally found safe and sound, we became friends. We learned that Hank lived alone, had severe clinical depression, PTSD, ADHD, and social anxiety. Hank was uneven. Sometimes he stayed secluded in his home for weeks on end. Then, in, on May 12, 2016, she gets up really early in the morning, and she was reading her Bible, and her phone is just blowing up in the other room. She doesn't know it because it's on silent. And it's all because the DEA has knocked down the door across the street at Hank's house. Guess what Hank was doing in the basement? Cooking crystal meth in a $425,000 house, one of the biggest crystal meth busts in Raleigh-Durham ever. So she says, what does the conservative Bible-believing family who lives across the street do in a crisis of this magnitude? How ought we to think about this? How ought we to live? We could barrack ourselves in the house, remind ourselves and our children that evil company perverts, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and like the good Pharisee, Pharisees that we are always poised to become, thank God that we are not like evil meth addicts. We could surround our home in our own version of yellow crime scene tape, giving the message that we are better than this, that we make good choices, that we would never fall into this mess. We could surround ourselves with fear. What if the meth lab explodes and takes out my daughter's bedroom, the, closest, the room closest to the lab with it? We could berate ourselves with criticism. How could we have allowed this meth addict into our hearts and our home? But that, of course, is not what Jesus calls us to do. The neighbors started to, you know, file onto their front yard and what did they do? They invited those neighbors in to process all of this. She gets some food going, and um, she goes on to say, where else but a Christian home should neighbors go in times of unprecedented crisis? Where else is it safe to be vulnerable, scared, lost, hopeless? How else could we teach our children how to apply faith to the facts of life, a process that cancels out neither reality as it begs Jesus for hope, help, redemptive purpose, and saving grace? If we were to close the shades and numb ourselves through media intake or go, to into, go into remote monologues about how we always knew he was bad or how we always make good choices, what legacy would, would that leave to our children? So she then backtracks a little bit and talks about the development of their Friendship, okay? So this is October 2015. Hank said, why are we friends? At one point when they were walking dogs together. I mean, why don't you think I'm an eyesore and an oddball like my neighbors in Chatham did? And Rosaria said, because God never gets the address wrong. Hank says, I, I never heard that before about God not getting the address wrong. You really believe that? I sure do. Is that another Christian thing? It sure is. And she says, when we pass other neighbors, I receive disquieted glares. A lot of people still haven't met Hank, so I stop and introduce Hank to every neighbor we pass. I say, Mr. Moore, meet Hank. Hank and his mom bought Ellie's old house on the corner, the house with whom we share the open woods. Hank, this is Mr. Moore. He lives on the corner there with the knockout roses. Hands clasp, eyes soften, names exchange. So DEA, drug bust, Hank's carted off to prison. 
The night that happened, they wrote him a letter so that he would know about their love for him even after they know what he's been doing in the basement. It's beautiful. So then she says this, my former neighbor Hank has, been, has recently been sentenced to almost two decades in prison on a plea bargain that turned out to be no bargain at all. He faces a prison sentence potentially longer than his life expectancy. Frequently these days, his letters reveal festering fears that he is homeless, unmoored, unloved, and unwanted, and that if he lives long enough, he will be homeless again upon release. Hank is not just my former neighbor. <laughs> he very recently put his faith and trust in Jesus. Hank and other prisoners who have committed their lives to Jesus need to know who in the church they will live with when they are released. They need to know where home is. So then later on in the book, she talks about how they've handled this in the neighborhood. And she talks about perfect love casting out fear. She said, on the one hand, of course we need to protect our children from harm. On the other hand, we must not presume that sheltering them will accomplish this. Perhaps our children need to know that when they confront doubts and fears, sexual temptations and moral and faith crises, we will not be shocked, offended, or hurt by this reality. We had a chance to live this out when our neighbor Hank was arrested for making crystal meth in his garage. Hank had been our friend. My son Knox, especially connected with Hank's love of nature, his ability to fix anything, his attention to detail, and his concern for our safety on long hikes. When Hank was arrested, our house, both because of its proximity to Hank's and because of our friendship, became a red cross for complaining neighbors. With sadness, we realized that we were the only neighbors who actually saw Hank as a human being made in the image of God. Knox was, Knox was brokenhearted at Hank's situation, all of it the way it betrayed us and the way it made us fear for his life. Knox was also brokenhearted by the way our neighbors talked about Hank. He observed, they talk about Mr. Hank like he's an animal or an alien creature. So obviously opportunity for discipleship with her son. Then she talks about the Sunday after the DEA showed up with the yellow crime scene tape. They invited their entire neighborhood over for lunch that afternoon. So everybody came over because they've been cultivating this for a long time. And her husband is a pastor, Kent, and he said the blessing for the food and spoke for five minutes. She said it was a powerful five minutes. The men removed their hats and we bowed our heads in prayer. Hank was our neighbor, Kent said, and Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, both the ones who are easy to love and the ones who are not. Kent described Hank as a mild-mannered recluse who helped us chop down trees and find Sully, that's their dog, when he escaped out of the backyard. Kent shared that Hank struggled with depression and anxiety and had served time in the army. Kent warned of the destructive power of gossip and of failing to forgive one another. He reminded us that drug addiction makes slaves of men, and he said that we were each capable of all kinds of sin. And Kent let it be known that all that the... Let it be known to all that the same power that raised Jesus Christ, our Lord, from the grave is bestowed on all those who repent and believe on him. Hank's story is not over yet, and neither is ours. Jesus saves sinners like us. So there was a crazy snowstorm. Fast forward to January, and they decided to have church at their house, and they again invited the neighborhood and what do you think was one of the topics of conversation around the lunch table? Hank. So 
They ask Kent, and you can see there's this softening among some of the neighbors in relation to Hank. And so here's what Kent says. Hank is fragile, of course. Jail breaks a man. But Hank has also just recently committed his life to Jesus, and Jesus will not let him down. Jesus will guide him through this. This is scary, of course, and so we pray and write a lot, and we place our hope in Jesus. So they get the chance to talk about salt and light in their neighborhood, not just with Hank, but with all the neighbors that come over as a result of all of this happening. And even the girlfriend that Hank had in his house, she became a believer too. That's more of the story. It's just really beautiful. So they won his trust and friendship, even though he stiff-armed them repeatedly. Then they find out he's making crystal meth in the basement. They write him a letter, visiting him in jail. He becomes a Christian, and they're teaching their neighbors how to respond. So why do you live where you live? Love. Why do you live where you live? Second question, second answer, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. So flip there. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. On the heels of the Beatitudes, the answer here is we live where we live to love our literal neighbors as ourselves with the love of Jesus in such a way where we are salt and light. We live where we live in order to bless and preserve and heal and dispel darkness and ultimately to glorify God. So the point is not just hospitality for hospitality's sake, checking off a box. It's for the sake of love, blessing, preserving, healing, dispelling darkness, and glorifying God. So let's look at these verses together here. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So salt, it obviously brings flavor to the food, but it also preserves from decay, especially in a time when there was no refrigeration. So can you see how peacemakers do this? Can you see how the Butterfield's words kept that neighborhood from just exploding with anger and, you know, hardening in, in unforgiveness and maybe the self-righteous Phariseeism. Instead, they kind of cracked open to the possibility that even a meth maker <laughs> could be rescued by Jesus. Do, do you see the effect of their salt and life living therein. So peacemakers, truth-tellers, lovers, people that are merciful, just like the Beatitudes speak of, they can do this preserving work in their neighborhood. You can do this preserving work in your neighborhood. And then verse 14, you are the light of the world. There's darkness in people's lives. There's darkness in our neighborhoods. And we move in to dispel the darkness. Love pushes back selfishness. Love combats the anti-sociality of sin. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a, a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So if we just come home and go right in our house and like wave and run back in, if we never bring the light out into our neighborhood and get to know our neighbors, it's like being a lit lamp and keeping it under a basket. 
So in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Do you see how we have to be intentional and proactive to love our little neighbors if this is actually going to happen in our neighborhoods, right? So why do you live where you live? In order to bless and preserve and heal and dispel darkness and ultimately to glorify God. So letting your light shine before others, this is for God's sake, his reputation, obviously not yours. A few verses later, Jesus warns us, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. But with that warning, shine our light we must. It's why God placed us among our neighbors. So listen to this quote by Willis and Clement. This is the little book that we're recommending. Anytime we practice hospitality, we follow in the steps of our lavishly hospitable God. Here's the potentially scary part. Because of our role in representing God to the world, when we don't walk in hospitality, we do tell the truth about God. I'm sorry, we do not tell the truth about God. When we are cold, separated, and distant from those around us, we communicate that God is cold, separated, and distant. So one of the uh, reflection questions that's in the bulletin there, there's several for you to consider and maybe discuss with folks in your community group. If Christians are like walking billboards for the character of God, what has your life said in your neighborhood? We need to hear this. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So there are reasons why you live where you live. You live where you live for the good of your neighbors. Most importantly, for their eternal good, loving your literal neighbors with the love that you've received from Jesus. And then we live where we live to be the light of the world, to dispel the darkness in our neighborhood, to be the salt of the earth, to address the decay and corruption that comes into our lives and into our neighborhoods as a result of sin. So we've been placed where we live by King Jesus to shine with, to spread the truth, the grace, the love of Jesus, all for the glory of God. So this is really practical. This is really important, right? I think sometimes the reason why we don't do this is because of what's the number one obstacle? You could probably all say it at once. Or you're afraid to be wrong, so you're not going to say anything. What do you think would be the number one obstacle to being hospitable in your neighborhood? Time. I heard time. Somebody say busyness. It's the same thing, right? What? Comfort. Comfort. Yep. Okay. Yep. Fear. So we're going to at least address selfishness, fear, and business and time. We looked at selfishness last week. So the time busyness one is probably huge for a lot of us, right? Well, really, issues of time are issues of priorities, right? So we've got to hit this busyness time thing head on. What are the texts that we looked at? <laughs> hey, Jesus, what's the great commandment? Like, what's life all about? Love God, love your neighbor. That's pretty high priority. Do you think we need to prioritize this? Or, why do I live where I live? Priorities, Matthew 5, salt and light. We are how the world sees the love of Jesus so that the Father might be glorified. That sounds like a pretty high priority right? The ultimate purpose for our existence is to glorify God. So whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or live in a neighborhood and neighbor and be hospitable, do it all to the glory of God. 
So the issue ultimately is not busyness, though certainly it can be a challenge. It's prioritization. So what do you, what do I need to cut back on in order to prioritize this? I mean, have you ever gotten into that, like, when things settle down cycle? Except, yeah, that's not going to happen until you die. So what if we all did a little life and calendar audit? Like, does the calendar align with our priorities? That might be the most practical application step today. So what non-essentials might we need to eliminate? What good things are crowding out the best things? It's a matter of values and priorities, and I think I certainly need to hear that. I think we all do. You also don't have to add a bunch of extra stuff to your calendar. You can repurpose things. So you're going to eat, eat with your neighbors. You might find out that somebody else has the same favorite show, invite them over to watch it, or a sports event, or a movie, or you're going to run, your neighbor runs, go for a run together. So the art of neighboring, the authors say, if we don't purposefully choose how to spend this vapor of a life, those choices will be made for us. So again, this is hard. How do we do this? Where's the strength? Where's the help? Where's the power to do this? Well, guess what? There it is. (laughs) Not literally inside those, I don't know, what kind of metal they're made out of, little tin things, but at the table that Jesus sets for us. That's where the help comes from. What in the world are we doing sitting at the table in the house of God? A part of his family? What right do we have to sit at his table? We were his enemies. All of our sin is just an affront in his face. Rejection and rebellion. What did he do? He didn't close the door and dismiss us. Fine, have it your way. No, he sends his son, the light of the world, down into our darkness, and we didn't even like it. You remember John 3? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. So Jesus died on a cross, this broken body, this spilled blood. The earth went dark because of our darkness. He was receiving our judgment, our punishment on the cross in our place because of love. Jesus loved his enemies. He loved us, even to the point of death on a cross, in order to make us his beloved family, to welcome us in. You can sit at this table. You've got a home. You've got a place. Come on home. Aren't you glad he went out of his way to bring you home, to welcome you in? Aren't you glad he continues to love and host and help and serve and bless you in so many proactive and intentional ways? So he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32, including the grace to love our literal neighbors, including those who might treat us the way that we treated God before he saved us. So... Brothers and sisters, come to the table. Let's come to the table again and remember his love and his grace and his hospitality and experience it again. Drink it in. Chew on it. Ingest it. Be strengthened by it. His love, his grace, his hospitality. And then in the strength, 
that he supplies, let's go and give his love and his grace and his hospitality to our literal neighbors. So if the men who are going to serve can come forward, we're going to participate now in the table. So if you've experienced the hospitality of God, welcoming you into his family, if you've repented of your sins and trusted Jesus, making that faith public through baptism, you are welcome to join us here at the table. Um, A word to any of you here that are not quite sure where you're at with Jesus yet, if you haven't trusted him as your Savior and as your Lord, we are so glad that you're here. We want nothing more than for you to experience that welcome that comes through the love of Jesus. We want you to know him personally. He came to seek and save the lost. He's really good at bringing home wandering sinners. But as for communion, at least, just let the elements pass. There's no shame in that. But if you'd like to talk to somebody afterwards, I certainly would be happy to talk to you. Or maybe if someone invited you, um, you know, share those questions and wrestle those things through. We'd love to get to know you better, and we'd love to help you get to know Jesus personally. So let's pray, and then we'll, uh, everyone will be served. Hold on to the, the bread and the cup, and then we'll all participate together. Father, we thank you for your great love and welcome through Christ. Thank you for loving us even while we were yet sinners. And I pray that that gospel grace and truth would flood our minds and our hearts now as we remember your body broken, your blood spilled for us to bring us in, to bring us home. And I pray that as we remember, we would be filled up with this great love with which you've loved us. And it would just well up and overflow in a desire to love our literal neighbors. To deal with whatever obstacles might get in the way, the fear, the busyness, the time, the selfishness, whatever it is, and to take practical steps to be the hands and feet, the heart, the words, the love of Jesus in our neighborhoods. Help us, Lord, to do that. Strengthen us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.